This is Jean-Claude Van Damme, and you are listening to the Tracks in Sapphire review of Time Cup with your guest host, Al. Remember to watch out for the Volma Twins. Uh, can somebody help me get my gum off the dashboard? In the year 2004, time travel is a reality. You are charged with violations of TEC code 40.8 time travel with intent to alter the future. And a crime. It turns out going back in time is a pretty easy way to make money. I think you got yourself a shipment of gold that you're taking to General Lee. The genie is already out of the bottle. The technology is there. Now, one man. You ever hear the name Aaron McComb? Is about to take the ultimate power trip. He's gonna be president. You don't need the press, you don't need endorsements, you don't even need the truth. You need money. But to enforce the laws of time. Are we still together in 10 years? Am I dead? One man is determined to stop him. I cannot go back to save her. This scumbag is not going back to steal money. Stay here, Walker. My future, you're dead. I think you plan too far ahead. Jean-Claude Van Damme. Ron Silver. Will you get him? Mia Sara. Greetings, programs. My name is Al Kessel. I am Quadshot from the forums. Enrico has graciously allowed me to sit in the captain's chair once more while he's off enjoying some well-deserved downtime. Now, for those of you who don't know me, uh, I actually host a uh, few podcasts with my lovely wife, Joyce. Uh, we host the Disneyland podcast, Tales from the Mouse House. We also host a weekly podcast dedicated to the Emmy Award-winning CBS reality show, The Amazing Race, and we call that one The Fast Forward. And uh, we started a new one uh, just recently called Just Because. It's a podcast dedicated to, <laughs> well, anything we feel like. And um, I'm also co-hosting an awesome podcast with my buddies Kenny, a geeky fanboy from the forums, and Meds, who is Hawkeye Meds from the forums. And that podcast is called the MASH 4077 Podcast, which uh, I'm sure you can guess is a fan cast dedicated to the uh, TV show MASH. Yep, that's a lot of podcasting, but uh, I'm officially addicted. So that brings me to the topic of this episode. I'm going to cover the 1994 sci-fi movie Time Cop, starring Jean-Claude Van Damme in uh, probably his best role ever. Sorry to rain on all of you who loved him in Street Fighter. <laughs> That's a joke, by the way. Anyway, what is Time Cop? Well, Time Cop was a 1994 science fiction thriller film based on a Dark Horse comic book by the same title. Now, Dark Horse uh, has actually had quite a few of their comics turned into movies, uh, including The Mask, uh, Tank Girl, Hellboy, and Barbed Wire. Yeah, Barbed Wire. That was, a, that was an interesting one. Uh, and they've also had quite a few more. Now, the plot of Time Cop is kind of familiar, your basic type of time travel action thriller. Uh, when the ability to 
travel through time is perfected, a new type of law enforcement agency must be formed to police this new and potentially terrible technology. So the Time Enforcement Agency, or TEC, is born. Now, Time Cop starred uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme as the TEC agent Max Walker, also the starring role. Uh, Mia Sarah from the movie Legend and uh, probably her most most famous role was in Ferris Bueller's Day Off, uh, played uh, Walker's wife, Melissa. The late Ron Silver played Senator uh, Aaron McComb, obviously. He's the bad guy in this one. Uh, Bruce McGill from many, many character roles played uh, Chief Matuzak, the head of the TEC. Uh, Gloria Rubin played uh, Agent Fielding, and Scott Lawrence as the government man George Spada, who actually forms the commission to build the TEC. Now, this film was directed by Peter Himes, who has a host of other films under his belt, like the uh, End of Days movie with um, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Uh, He also uh, directed 2010, Outland, Capricorn One, and he did the uh, the TV series uh, Amazing Stories and a lot more, including the uh, the horrible A Sound of Thunder, which is another time travel movie, but nowhere near as good as Time Cop. The screenplay was written by Mark Verheiden, based on the Dark Horse comic story written by uh, Mike Richardson and Mark Verheiden. Time Cop opened on September 16, 1994, in the number one spot for that weekend, with uh, just a little over $12 million. Now, the total U.S. box office receipts for its uh, initial one were $45 million, with overseas sales even higher at over $58 million. The total box office for Time Cop was nearly $104 million, which for the time was really quite good. Now, critics were very mixed on the movie, though, pointing out uh, the many plot holes, not to mention uh, Van Damme's less-than-stellar acting. Uh, Time Cop actually made Entertainment Weekly's uh, list of underrated films. Now, the film starts out in the year 1863 on a very wet, rainy, and cold day. As the camera pans over a little, we see a group of Confederate soldiers riding on horseback and wagon when they're blocked by a mysterious man asking them, asking them to give them all their gold. Of course, they refuse, as all good Confederate soldiers would do, and he opens up his trench coat and pulls out a couple of laser-sighted submachine guns, and he just cuts them all down. Morning. Morning. Y'all mind stepping aside? You know what I think? No, sir, I don't. I think you got yourself a shipment of gold in that wagon that you're bringing to General Lee. Just who might you be? Friend of the Confederacy? Why don't you all just show us what a good friend you are by stepping aside? I'd be most happy to. Except first, I'd be much obliged if you'd give me that gold. (laughs) I don't think I heard you correctly. I think you did. I'd like that gold now. Listen, mister, it ain't very nice out here, as you can plainly see. There are five of us. I don't know what y'all are about, except if you don't step aside now, I just assume kill you is not. You want to die out here in this miserable weather? That's your choice. Pretty nice. Now, as the next scene opens up, we're told that it's now October 1994, and we're in Washington, D.C. at a top-secret U.S. government meeting. In walks George Spada, who tells the panel of good old boys that a crazy smart scientist succeeded in making time travel possible. 
The only catch is that you can only go back. You can't go forward because, of course, the future hasn't happened yet. Now, without any doubt in anyone's mind, you know this is just going to be trouble. And George goes on to explain how going back can create a whole lot of mess. For example, you could go back and kill Hitler, but you shouldn't because the ripple effect would endanger all mankind. Whoa. So George tells the panel of senators that he's going to ask them for about a gazillion dollars to form a new agency to prevent these bad guys from misusing this new technology. And oh, by the way, we think there's already been a ripple in the old time pond because some gold coins showed up that uh, were actually a part of a missing Civil War era shipment. And yep, it was confirmed through carbon dating that these things were really, really old. Now, at this point, we're introduced to Officer Matuzak, who's going to head up this new law enforcement agency. Now, as George is chatting up all this time travel doom and gloom, we see young Senator Aaron McComb listening quite intently. Hmm, I wonder why. As George finishes his sales pitch, the senior senator appoints McComb to head up this oversight committee. Next, we see uh, Mr. High Kicker himself, Jean-Claude Van Damme, a.k.a. Max Walker, as he hooks up with his wife at the mall. His wife, Melissa, played by Mia Sarah, is looking kind of uh, like she's deep in thought about something when Max comes up behind her and says in his awesomely accented, difficult-to-understand voice, There's never enough time. Never enough for what? To satisfy a woman then you never want to miss an opportunity. Are you busy? I'm meeting my husband. Poor Max. Melissa asks Max if uh, he's going to take the job, and of course he says yes. And after a fun little scene with a purse snatcher where Max intercepts the kid, sticks his boot in his face in an impressive show of incredible limberness that made me wince and still does. Now Max and Melissa walk off, but not before Max notices a couple of mullet-haired goons looking down at him. As he does a quick look back at them, of course, they're gone. Now, flash forward a few hours and we see Max and Melissa. They're now at home in bed doing, well, doing the time warp. Then the phone rings. Seems uh, he's on call and he must go and save DC once more. Now, as he's getting ready to walk out the door, Melissa begins to tell him something very important and Max asks her to wait until later. <laughs> Dummy. As Max opens the front door to leave, he's sucker-punched by none other than the, one of those uh, mullet-haired goons from earlier. As they drag Max out into the front yard, he looks up and sees Melissa being roughed up a bit in the upstairs window when mullet-head number one puts a few rounds into his chest. Now the goon walks upstairs and Max wakes up because, you know what, he's got a Kevlar vest on. Well, good boy. As he struggles to get to his feet to rescue his wife, the house explodes in an awesome, impressively gigantic fireball, and pieces of the house are flying everywhere. Now, jump ahead to Wall Street, 1929. Okay, that just didn't make any sense, but, oh well, whatever. You know what I mean. Anyway, we see Mr. Atwood get out of a 1929 version of a limousine, and he walks into uh, a stockbroker's company, and he goes all the way up to the top floor. As he steps into his office, he pulls out the New York Times from you know that day, and then he opens up to the stock section. Then he opens up a USA Today newspaper. 
dated October 2004. And he begins comparing the numbers. Now, after he makes uh, a call and decides to buy up 100,000 shares of Middle States Oil, uh, he has a feeling about the future, you know. (laughs) As uh, Atwood gets comfortable in his uh, nice, beautiful chair, we see the first time travel effects of this movie. And the space in uh, the office begins to ripple a little bit, and Max Walker walks out casually and begins collecting all of Atwood's things to take him back to the future. It seems that uh, Atwood used to be a TEC cop, and uh, by the way, he was Walker's partner. But before Walker can take Atwood back, he has to fight through a couple of Atwood's goons, and after some witty banter, he kicks the antique out of them and grabs Atwood. However, Atwood has some very interesting news to tell him. Let me go, Max. I'll stay here. I won't go back. Who sent you? I wonder name. Can't make any difference. In a few weeks, this guy's going to run the whole country. If he doesn't get the money here, he's going to get it somewhere else. I can't tell you anything. He'll send somebody back to wipe out my grandparents. It'll be like I never existed. My mother, my father, my wife, my kids, my cat. You ever hear the name Aaron McComb? Senator McComb? Bullshit. You don't understand. He's going to be president. He's doing this to get money for his campaign. Max, he already owns most of the guys we work with. When we get back, you'll point them out. You're out of your mind. This guy's gonna roll right over you. We'll see. Let's go. Listen to me. If I go back and talk, my family is dead. I'm talking about my family. If I die here, it's only me. I can't go back. And then Atwood jumps out the window, but Max is hot on his heels, and he grabs him in midair, and they're both transported back to 2004. Atwood is brought before the TEC judges, convicted of his crime, since, you know, he won't name the guy who sent him, and he's sentenced to death, which is pretty harsh, by being transported back to the moment that Walker brought him here, and splat, he falls to his death. Now, back in the future of uh, 2004, Senator McComb, George, and a few other senators are touring the TEC headquarters while McComb is telling the others how dangerous time travel is. He points out that Atwood, a former TEC agent, was corrupt and that uh, for the good of mankind, the TEC needs to be shut down. But uh, we know why he really wants it shut down, don't we? As McComb and his aides leave, they climb into their futuristic auto-driven car and chat about uh, how difficult it will be to win the presidential election. To prove just what an evil guy he really, really is, McComb grabs his aide's head and slams it into the side of the car, making blood go everywhere. McComb talks about buying network time, and he's told, well, you know what, that's going to cost $50 million. Hmm, that's about how much Atwood lost when Walker grabbed him. McComb says they'll just have to convince Walker to back off. Back at the TEC, Walker confides in Matuzak that Atwood named McComb, and he begins to get pretty upset. He says that if he can't go back in time and save Melissa, then McComb sure the heck isn't going to go back and uh, steal money. Max calls it a night and heads for home in his own auto-driven car. 
Now at home, Max begins to get drunk while watching old movies of him and his wife. He passes out, and then we hear the door chime that someone just came in. Uh-oh, assassins! <laughs> Max fights off the two thugs, one armed with a taser and the other with knives. He does some pretty fancy leg splits on the kitchen counter, then he beats them both senseless. As, as he tosses them out the door, another TEC agent comes running up, and she introduces herself as Agent Fielding. And uh, guess what? She's going to be his new partner. <laughs> Uh-oh, Max no like. Max confronts Matuzak back at TEC headquarters, and he's informed that Fielding, uh, played by Gloria Rubin, is actually in internal affairs. No one trusts Max now because his former partner was dirty. Ooh, nasty. Now, as the two bicker back and forth, an alarm is sounded. There's been another disturbance of Phase 6. Not quite sure what a Phase 6 is, as they never told us, but I'm going to assume it's pretty bad. <laughs> Now, they make their way back to the action room and check out the issue. The disturbance is in Washington, D.C. in the year 1994. Max and Fielding are ordered to check it out by going back there and looking around. Now, this is when we finally get to see the amazing time travel sled, which actually looks very similar to a Viper from Battlestar Galactica. Now, as Walker and Fielding strap in, they're catapulted at a very, very high rate of speed towards a giant structure that begins to ripple a little bit. And just on the other side of that, <laughs> a huge wall, of course. As they reach speed, the sled enters the ripple area and disappears. Now, as the duo arrives in 1994, they materialize in midair above the Potomac River and psh, splash right in. As the agents use some very sophisticated-looking tracking devices to find the location of the disturbance, Fielding chats about going back in time and changing things for herself. And then she asks Walker if he ever thought about doing that. You know what she's doing. She's kind of fishing around to see if he's got uh, aspirations of changing things. Sure, he's thought of that, but he hasn't done anything about it because that would be wrong. As they walk up to the warehouse, they see the name Parker McComb Datalink on the outside. Fielding comments that she thought it was only Parker Datalink. Hmm, seems that young Senator McComb was an investor at one time. As Walker and Fielding separate to investigate, Walker comes across young McComb arguing with Parker about the new computer chip. See, Parker wants to buy McComb out because, you know, McComb has no vision. <laughs> but just then... Another telltale ripple in the air, and out walks a couple of henchmen and uh, an older version of Senator McComb. As the younger McComb is approached by the older McComb, and when the younger McComb reaches out to him, the older guy gets all worked up. After a little chatting about upcoming events, Max draws his gun and he walks up to the senators and tells them they're both under arrest. But guess what? Fielding draws her gun and points it at Max's head. <laughs> Uh-oh. Ms. Internal Affairs has been compromised. To prove once more what a huge jerk he is, McComb shoots Fielding in the chest when she demands that he make good on his promise to her. Max fights his way free from the bad guys, and as he's escaping, he sees young McComb cowering uh, over in the corner somewhere, and he gives him a kick right in the face, cutting him really badly. And at that moment, we see older McComb magically grow a long scar on his face. Now, back in 1994, that was some pretty cool special effects. I remember being pretty impressed by that. Now, older McComb grabs his time machine activator, and he heads back to the future of 2004. As local police descend on the warehouse, Walker activates his own machine, and he heads back. But what he finds is very, very different than what he left. Now, all the computers and things say McComb data link. 
The senator changed the future in his favor. Max tries to explain to Matuzak that it's all changed and McComb is actually a murderer and a time traveler, but of course he has no evidence. While all this is happening, all around them, technicians and cops are dismantling the TEC because McComb got his way. You see, you can do that when you travel through time. So, Max decides that the only way to get proof is to go back in time to the very moment that he left and hope that he can find Fielding alive so she'll witness against the evil McComb. Problem, though, no one in this new future knows who the heck Fielding is because McComb changed history and she was never there. Now, while Max is trying to convince Matuzak to help him hijack a time slot so he can go back, we see McComb and his aide back in their really cool, futuristic limo discussing Max Walker. The senator decides that they need to go back to 1994 and erase Max before he ever joined the TEC. Problem solved, right? Hmm, this plan sounds awfully familiar. Oh yeah, this is how the whole movie started. So back at TEC headquarters, Max gets Matuzak to help him, and uh, as Max is zooming away on the sled, Matuzak is shot and killed by one of McComb's men. Doesn't anyone shoot in the legs anymore? (laughs) Once back in 1994, Max finds out that Fielding is in the hospital and decides to go visit her. As Max walks into the hospital, we see Max's still-alive-in-1994 wife, Melissa, walking out. I wonder why she was in there. Hmm. Now, inside the ICU, Max finds Fielding and tells her that uh, he plans on taking her back to 2004 and testify against McComb to put him away forever. But to be on the safe side, Max decides it's a good idea to grab a vial of her blood from the lab, you know, just in case. And as he's snooping around among the vials of, uh, you know, blood, he comes across one that says Walker on it. It's from his wife. Guess what? She's pregnant. Oh, bloody. (laughs) So that's what she wanted to tell him on that faithful night 10 years ago, or in a few hours, or whatever. You know what I mean. Time travel gets so confusing. I've decided to stop doing it. (laughs) As Max rushes back to Fielding's room, he sees that he's way too late. She's been murdered. As he runs out to see if he can spot the two killers, he sees the backs of two very familiar mullets. The same guys who tried to kill him 10 years ago, or tonight. Oh man, forget it. And the ones responsible for Melissa's death. There's only one thing that he can do. Save Melissa. Heck, at this point he decides that the prime directive on time travel is no longer valid, and he wants to stop McComb at any cost, even if it means saving his wife. Huh, whatever. As Max makes his way to the mall where this whole thing all began, we see the very familiar scene with Melissa thoughtfully uh, window shopping waiting for young Max. Now we know what she was so distracted about. The baby! As old Max is watching young Max make his way through the mall, he spots the two mullets watching young Max too. So just like before, Max pops in from behind Melissa and he grabs her shoulders and tells her not to turn around. Oh, okay, sure, that works on women. As she spins around, she begins to freak out a little bit because, well, he just looks so freaking old. (laughs) You know, 10 years, a long time. He tells her, hey, it's me. I'm from the future. Remember that job Matuzak offered me? Well, it involves time travel. I'm from the future. Melissa is still pretty skeptical, so Max, Max figures that the only way to convince her is to show her his younger self walking through the mall. As old Max hides, he watches young Max deliver the lines from the beginning of this movie.
Now, as young Macomb is walking through his office, he gets a very important message. He grins maniacally, and then he gets really, really happy. Now, at this point, we're treated to some very serious deja vu moment as we see Max and Melissa in bed doing, you know, the time warp again. And then Max gets that fateful call. As he's getting ready, Melissa goes downstairs where she sees old Max. He asks Melissa, you didn't tell him, did you? She tells him that she didn't have a chance. Okay, now wait a minute. Pause button. Why would he ask her that when he knows what happened? Duh. Okay, play button. Before young Max leaves the house, old Max goes outside, disarms one of the attackers that he knows is there, but the other attacker grabs Max's gun. As they struggle, a shot is fired, and, and young Max rushes to see what's going on. After Max, the old Max, disposes of one of the attackers, young Max is investigating in the house, and Melissa is being pursued by one of the mullet twins. She makes her way to the roof and begins climbing to what she thinks is safety. But you know what? It's raining, and it's slippery, and she's on the roof. Why? At this point, young Max has discovered that Melissa is being chased, and he's gone up onto the roof to help her. As he goes up there, Mullet Boy traps him. Melissa slips from the roof, and young Max grabs her and holds on by one hand, because he's Max. Melissa grabs around and finds a gun and opens fire on one of the mullet boys, forever ending the business in the front, party in the back hair trend. As Melissa and young Max make their way back onto the roof, they're surprised by yet another henchman who pumps a few rounds into Max's chest. But you know what? We know he's wearing a vest. But he falls 20 feet to the ground and passes out. Now, as old Max makes his way back into the house, he runs upstairs to find old Macomb holding young Melissa at gunpoint. Max stops dead in his tracks, and like all good evil geniuses, Macomb decides to monologue with Walker instead of just shooting him on the spot. Macomb begins to explain his plans, and just then, young Max pops up at the window and shoots one of the goons square in the forehead, but of course he freaks out when he sees himself, because, you know, who wouldn't? <laughs> Another cool fight scene ensues, and, and young Max winds up getting knocked out again, as old Max breaks the neck of yet another goon, and then he runs back upstairs to stop old Macomb. This is getting kind of confusing. As old Macomb continues to discuss the merits of his plan, he says to Walker, You were at a disadvantage in this from the beginning. You see, I'm an ambitious, Harvard-educated visionary who deserves to be the most powerful man in the world, and you, you're, you're an idiot. He never figured out that the only way to make anything of himself with all that fancy kicking is on Broadway. Thanks for clearing that up. You know the polls have me winning by 28 points. It's the biggest landslide since Nixon back in 72. I find it reassuring to know what the future holds, don't you? That's C4. Not only will it turn this house into dust, but it will also separate every... Now, he accuses Walker of doing the same thing that he's being accused of, but Walker says, nope, you change things. I'm making them right. And just then, young Macomb walks into the room. Remember the message that he got earlier? Well, old Macomb freaks out and he asks him, what the heck are you doing here? And the youngling says, well, you left me a message. As they're arguing, Walker delivers yet another one-liner. Don't argue among yourself.
mess now. I hope you're happy. This is a real mess. You turned what was going to be a simple, ordinary murder into a bloodbath. As Max silently counts down to his wife, then he cues her, she moves to the side, gets shot, and Walker grabs the younger McComb and delivers, <laughs> guess what, another one-liner. You get out of here. Get out of here. Go. Go. And in a sequence of the most Picasso-looking special effects ever seen, the two McCombs become one, literally, one giant pool of goo on the floor, and then they disappear in a really cool ripple effect. Old Max picks up Melissa and runs downstairs in slow motion. Remember the bomb that was set? And he gets her to safety just as the house blows up again. He carries her over to young Max and sets her down, but he's very careful not to touch himself. Okay, that didn't sound right, so forget that. Next, we see the good old time sled slowing back down at TEC headquarters in good old future 2004. Max looks around, and he sees the familiar Parker data link sign once more, and he makes his way through the offices. Everything seems to be back to normal. He runs into Matuzak, who was shot to death the last time he saw him. Max asks about Senator McComb, and Matuzak looks at him and says, Dude, are you okay? Then he begins to tell him the sad story that 10 years ago, young McComb left his office and was never to be seen again. As Max is hopping out of the HQ, he encounters Fielding, alive. But of course, she doesn't recognize him because they never met. So, mission accomplished, and now Max can go back home again to his lonely apartment, get drunk, and watch old home movies. He climbs into his auto-driven car, tells it to go home, and then he closes his eyes. As he reaches his destination, he sees that he's in front of his old house, fully restored. Home and Garden TV to the rescue. As he makes his way to the door, he's greeted by his 10-year-old son. <laughs> what? And his wife, Melissa. Yay! Happy ending. Now, I know I ran through that uh, plot synopsis kind of fast and maybe with a bit of sarcasm, but honestly, I really, really liked this movie. Uh, maybe it was because of the topic. I don't know, but I really did like it. In fact, it's one of two movies that Van Damme ever did that I really thought enough of to buy. The, uh, the other one is Universal Soldier, and although both of the movies uh, aren't what you'd call shining examples of, of award-winning writing or acting, there's, uh, there's really just something about them that appealed to me. Uh, you know, maybe it's, you know, the wanton destruction or uh, violence. I'm not sure, but uh, I really enjoy both of those movies. That being said, though, I do have some issues with Time Cop. Aside from the time travel problems that all movies of this genre suffer from, there were a few things that I thought were bad enough not to overlook. Now, right at the beginning, uh, in the scene where George is telling the committee uh, about the time travel, you know, George tells them that their a breach has already happened because they found gold coins that were in pristine condition and were part of a missing shipment of Civil War coins. Now, they know this for a fact. Why? Because they carbon dated them and they were authentic. Okay, so if they were stolen back in the 1800s, immediately brought to 2004 and spent, what was there to carbon date? They're technically not old. They were brand new when they were stolen, and they were brand new when they were brought to the future. It would be like, you know, taking a quarter now and carbon dating it. 
there'd be no properties indicating that it was old. That plus, um, although I'm not an expert, uh, I do believe that carbon dating measures the uh, the half-life of carbon atoms found in organic material, stuff like plants, uh, flesh, and fabric. And to my knowledge, there's no organic material in the gold coins. Hmm? Maybe? I don't know. The next issue I have is with the uh, the stock market in 1929 scene. Um I get that Atwood is comparing the stock prices, but why is he using the USA Today? Wouldn't the Wall Street Journal have been a better choice? More accurate, maybe? Who knows? And uh, one little historical boo-boo in the fight scene in Atwood's office. After Max beats the first guy down, the second guy grabs a broken lamp with the light bulb exposed. Now, for some reason, they actually zoomed in on that light bulb, and we can clearly see what looks to be, you know, like a GE or something like that printed on the top of the bulb. Now, again, I'm not a history major, but I'm pretty sure that this type of light bulb didn't exist back then. And on a technical note... When they keep saying that the same matter can't occupy the same space at the same time, you know, realistically, after 10 years, the surface matter between uh, the two McCombs is basically different. Um, All the hair in the skin cells would have completely cycled to new cells by that time. So that that was kind of stretching it for me. And uh, also, why does McComb decide to steal money from the past when he has all of history to play with? I mean, why not go back in time and and do something better? I mean, you know, there's so much, so many things that he could have done. Why does he, you know, decide to be a common criminal? I just thought that that was kind of lazy writing. Maybe um, I just didn't really enjoy that aspect of it. I think that the writers could have come up with something a little more effective uh, to make him the bad guy. And then at the end, when Max walks up to his house and his wife, why does Melissa act like she's clueless about what happened? I mean, even though things have changed in that future, she should remember that this Max went back in time to save her life. That shouldn't have been something she would have forgotten, I would think. Okay, now to my biggest issue with this movie, the time machine used to travel back. I don't understand it. Why did they need to ride in a rocket sled to travel back? Obviously, there's some sort of power source that opens up a time portal. And in fact, the first time we see Walker travel back, he's strolling through the thing. I mean, he's like, you know, bebopping through like it's nothing. If he were barreling at warp speed in a rocket sled, why is he walking here? And where do the sleds go after the time traveler is dropped into the past? Is it in some sort of netherworld holding pattern until they're uh, recalled? Now, all in all, I really did enjoy this movie. Uh, I love the idea of time travel when it's done right. And I think that even though it has some flaws, Time Cop does it kind of right. Of course, you know, it was done in the 1990s, so it's a bit dated. And uh, the writers did choose to go to the route of some corny one-liners, but it's not bad. It, uh, It really does fit. The film, which of course was based on the comic, received a TV version in 1997, which only ran for, uh, I think, nine episodes before being canned. The series starred T.W. King, who played in a lot of TV movies and soap operas. Uh, He starred as Jack Logan, TEC agent. Now, the TV series didn't have the following that the producers had anticipated, probably because it wasn't done very well, and uh, it was also a few years after the movie had been released. And then in uh, 2003, 
A direct-to-DVD sequel called Time Cop 2, The Berlin Decision, uh, was released. Uh, This one starred Jason Scott Lee uh, from the movie Soldier, um, Dragon, the Bruce Lee story. And uh, he also played Mowgli in the live-action version of The Jungle Book. And of course, like all good movies like this, uh, there was also a video game put out by uh, Cryo Interactive that was released to the Super NES system in 1995. Um, I never played it, so uh, I can't really speak to it, but uh, (laughs) I can't imagine that it was a very good game. And of course, there is a rumor out there that a remake is being planned that will be uh, a bit more loyal to the comic book. But it's one of those uh, on again, off again, on again, off again things. So uh, the best we have right now is a rumor that uh, yeah, that's in talks. Now, of course, um, this this whole episode was based on my opinion. Um, I, I know there's a lot of people out there who don't like the movie Time Cop, and uh, there are a lot of people out there that who uh, there are a lot of people out there who like it much more than I do. So uh, don't get me wrong. I mean, don't take my. Uh, my thoughts to, to heart as uh, the only thing out there. Um, see it for yourself. I mean, Time Cop really is worth watching at least once, and you can get it just about anywhere. Uh, it's on Netflix um, streaming. It's You can get the, the Netflix DVD, and uh, I'm sure that if you look at like Walmart or someplace like that, you can probably pick it up for 5 to $7. Uh, it's definitely well worth it. Now, we got a um, we actually got a comment from our good friend Rob Butler, uh, he's a great friend to Trex and Sci-Fi. Uh, he's actually done uh, some um, some voices for us on Tales from the Mouse House as well. Uh, Rob does some excellent, excellent impersonations. In fact, his uh, his impersonation of uh, Sean Connery is spot on. And in fact, it was it's it's kind of scary. It's so <laughs> so real. In fact, when I got his comment for Time Cop here. Uh, I didn't recognize him. It's like, wait a minute, who's this guy? <laughs> and I realized I don't think I've ever heard his real voice. Hey, this is Rob the Tune Man from Oregon. I just uh, wanted to put in a couple comments about the movie Time Cop. I, uh, I actually happen to be a big fan of Time Cop. I know there are a lot of people out there that aren't, um, but I actually like the premise. I like the way... When Jean-Claude goes back in time and he returns to the future, that the future is different. Uh, I like the fact that his memory, because he is in the past, remains the same. He has the memory of both timelines, or all timelines, when he does it. Um, I just like the way, uh, I also like the way that when it comes, uh, the beginning comes around again at the end. Um, but the, uh, probably my ultimate favorite part had nothing to do with Jean-Claude Van Damme. It is the first minute or so of the film, uh, the Civil War scene in the rain, and, uh, the guy wanting to steal the gold. That is just an absolutely awesome scene. All right, um, thanks Rico for letting Al, uh, review this movie, and, uh, I'll talk at you later. Thanks, Rob, for that comment. Um, I agree. Uh, I, I'm probably. I think you and I are probably uh, some of the few people, uh, you know, few groups of people at least who who enjoy this movie for what it is. Um, it's too easy of a target for a lot of people, and um, you know, I don't think it gets the uh, the props that it's due. I, I like the beginning as well. I think it was a great way to start the movie. It was a very uh, powerful. 
um, strong message if you really think about it with the with the uh, guy from the future uh, in the Civil War time. It it said a lot about that movie in that first uh, you know minute or two minutes of the film. Right away, we knew that time travel was was going to be a well, I mean, by the title, you know, <laughs> time travel. But I mean, they they said a lot about that right in that opening with, you know, the time traveling and the uh, the stealing of things from the past. So, uh, great comments, and I appreciate them. Well, that's all that I have for you in this episode of Trex and Sci-Fi, and I appreciate you listening in. And again, I am so thankful to uh, to Rico for having this wonderful podcast and this wonderful community. Um, like I've said so many, many times, uh, it has enabled many of us to launch out into our own podcasts. And, uh, you know, it has brought us together with so many good friends. I've met, you know, a, a few really great close friends uh, through this um, network of geeky people. And uh, you know what? I'm proud to call myself a geek. And so it's time for the shameless plug. When you're done listening to Treks and Sci-Fi, how about hopping over to iTunes and looking up one of my many, many podcasts, Tales from the Mouse House, which is a Disneyland-related podcast, the Fast Forward for all you Amazing Race fans, and Just Because for all you fans of well, everything else. And don't forget to check out the MASH 4077 podcast with uh, Kenny, Meds, and myself. So until next time, take care. Attention, attention, it's finally here, the first and only podcast dedicated to one of the most groundbreaking television series in history, MASH. Join the hosts of MASH 4077 Podcast, Kenny, Meds, and Al, as they discuss their thoughts episode by episode. They will also share with you some little-known behind-the-scenes information, trivia, and so much more. Find them on iTunes by searching MASH 4077 Podcast or online at www.mash4077.podbean.com. Eleven teams of two in an exciting race around the world to win one million dollars on The Amazing Race. I'm Joyce. And I'm Al. On our new show, The Fast Forward Podcast, we'll recap each weekly episode of The Amazing Race, give you a rundown on each team, and tell you our predictions on who we think will cross the mat in first place each week and ultimately win the one million dollar prize we'll also share listener predictions and other interesting information we pick up along the season check out the fast forward podcast in itunes and we'll see you at the fast forward hi this is rick and this is Amy. And we are the co-hosts of... Take Him With You. The weekly podcast that's spiritual, not religious. And we have a great time every week talking about our geeky life. Mm-hmm. What's going on around our house and stuff like that. And then we, of course, always tackle some type of a big, um, what do you call it, like main subject or main thing or something that, that uh, provokes everyone to think about stuff, right? Yeah, something like that. <laughs> we have a good time talking and, and we um, have 
um, listener feedback. They yeah. ask questions and comment on our Facebook posts and, yeah. and our participate in our subjects. Well, our whole goal for our podcast is to encourage people because we live in such a crazy world where life can get down real easy. So we try to be real positive and talk about the good things in life and try to put a little spiritual twist on things because we all need a little bit more faith in our lives. Faith helps. It does. Yeah. Take him with you. Yeah. Every week. Visit us at TakeHimWithYou.com. And thanks. Have you ever wanted to share something with someone just because? Well, we do a lot. So we started a podcast about, well, whatever we want. My name is Joyce. And I'm her lovely husband, Al. Uh, Well, you know what I mean. And we're the hosts of the Disneyland podcast, Tales from the Mouse House. And the Amazing Race podcast, Fast Forward. And I'm one of the co-hosts of the MASH 4077 podcast. And you'd think with all of these podcasts, we'd run out of things to share. But then you'd be wrong. In our new show, Just Because, we're going to share all the things that, well, just don't fit into any of our other podcasts. Yep. Like videos of our puppy Kate as she plays with the water bottle. Mm -hmm. Maybe some episodes chatting about one of our favorite TV shows. Like Lost? Uh Uh-huh. Or maybe an audio play Al has written. And we'll even have episodes contributed by others who have something to share but just don't want to start their own podcast. You never know what you'll find on this show. Why? Just because. Visit us at because.podbean.com and in iTunes.